If you attend a Bible preaching church consistently, then in the course of a year, you will hear 50 to 100 hours of the discipline of preaching. 50 to 100 hours. If you come for a decade, 10 years, you're going to have 1,000 hours, which is something like the coursework for a PhD, the class lecturing for a traditional PhD. Then why is it that a great many people attend church for 20 or 30 or 40 years, and if you ask them to open their Bibles to Ephesians, they can't do it? Or if you tell them, what's the main point of, for example, the book of Acts? Or can you summarize in a sentence the book of Romans? They can't do it. Why is it that we have churches, Patrick Johnstone's book, the 2012 edition of Operation World says there's 37,000 churches in this country. That's 2012. Ten years later, there's got to be a lot more, right? 37,000 churches, but I have a little flyer that I made and have given out to people with five questions on it. And you know, almost no one gets these questions right. These are not difficult. Who is Jesus? Letter A, man. Letter B, God. Letter C, both. It's multiple choice. I constantly have people, including pastors, who can't answer that question. Number two, what is man like? Basically evil, basically good. Letter A or letter B. Consistently people choose basically good. In the face of the teachings of our Lord and nearly every book of the Bible. Number three, if a man wants to go to heaven, what would you tell him? Pray, go to church, live a good life, or something else. Consistently people say pray. Forgetting Christ at all, which is no surprise to me because if he's not in your heart, he won't come out at your mouth. Question four, will God accept a man who has a Bible, goes to church and believes in God, yet he still fears witchcraft? Letter A, yes, he's a Christian. Letter B, no, God will not accept him. Consistently people say, yes, he's a Christian. Forgetting Luke 12, verses four and five. The last one, where does Jesus say that most people will go when they die? Letter A, to God in heaven. Letter B, to the fire of hell. I I put the answers right in there. But anyone who's been in church for a decade, having heard a thousand hours of biblical preaching, can't get those questions wrong. The problem is, we have a famine of the word of God in our souls, according to Amos 8, 11 and 12. Because we have a famine of the word of God in the pulpits. So, I want to talk to you about the goal of preaching for the next 45 minutes. I want to ask you, what should the goal be? And notice in your handouts, bullet number three. Starting with the goal, even before I tell you what preaching is, will guide everything we're going to study in the rest of the book because this foundational idea, this controlling basic belief, is going to govern everything else we see in Scripture. So the question is, why are we preaching? What is the goal? What should you hope to hear? When you go on Sunday and listen to a man talk for an hour, what has he done? What was he trying to do? I'm going to give you three answers to that right now. And this coming Lord's Day, when you go, ask yourself as you listen to that man or woman stand up and speak, Did they accomplish any of these three goals? Now, I've listed these three, but really they are so connected 
that if you accurately accomplish one, you are also accomplishing the other two. So follow this in your notes here. The thesis, the goal of preaching is, now here I've got the three mentioned. The goal of preaching is to produce the right affections. You can put by that word affections, heart. To produce the right knowledge. You can put by that word knowledge, head. And to produce the right obedience. You can put by that obedience, hands. Heart, head, hands. Something has to affect the way you live. That's the obedience or the hands. Something has to affect the way you love. It has to change your desires. If it doesn't change your desires, according to 1 Peter 1.8, you're not a Christian. And it must affect your mind. There's got to be a teaching element to it. Number one. Now, if you're just turning the pages, you can see number one takes up the bottom of page six. I think in your books, it's page seven. The printer jumped a page on me. And page six and seven, or maybe it's seven and eight in your books, is going to be occupied with number one. And then look, look uh, look at the next page, page nine, and see Roman numeral two. And that's, pre, that's teaching, explaining the Bible. And you'll see I've only dealt with that in this little section. That's because the rest of my book is dealing with teaching. It's so important. So this is the only time when I get to talk about the heart, which is why I took more time on the first lecture. And then number three there on page number nine, the aim of true preaching is the submission of God's people or the obedience. Having seen that little outline, that little roadmap, run back to number one. And let's ask ourselves for a moment, what does it mean that the goal of preaching is love or the exaltation of Christ? What is this heart element? What goal should you have in your heart? And and the answer is, the goal should be that the heart is drawn out to Jesus Christ. It's not enough that it be drawn out only to God. That is a good beginning. But it must uniquely be drawn out to Christ. Let's discuss that for a moment. Letter A is God. God himself is worthy of all honor. Notice the passages here. Romans eleven thirty six. 36. Who can read that for us? Lloyd, go ahead. It's, it's in your notes. It's letter A, number one. For from him and through him and to him all are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. From him and through him and to him are all things. Romans eleven thirty six. 36. <coughs> There ought to be an entirely God-centered focus. Not just in our preaching, but in everything we do. Number two, uh, Alpheus. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. If that idea could master our minds... We would live as God-centered men. We would guide our families if we could only be controlled and dominated by the concept that in heaven, there is a God. He has a throne and he is worthy. And there is coming a point in time when the bucky you drive will not matter. When the money you have will not matter. When the only thing that will dominate your mind was, what did I do to bring honor to God? And that passage brings it out for us. Number three, this is one of the uh, great classic quotes 
on preaching by Martin Lloyd-Jones, the Welsh preacher, preached in London. Who can read number three for us? Uh, Brother Mashudu, would you please read that? Number three, what is the chief end of preaching? It is to give men and women a sense of God and His presence. Underline that. Give men and women a sense of God and His presence. Martin Lloyd-Jones was known for his preaching in London in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. And that man evaluated his own preaching and the preaching of others by this standard. Did the men and women see God? Now, if you have a pen, mark in your notes. 1 Corinthians 14, 24, and 25. I didn't put this in the notes, but this passage fits perfectly. Do you know that passage? It's in the midst of the discussion of the Apostle Paul and speaking in tongues. He's giving instruction on speaking in tongues, and he says, I would rather speak five words in a language that people understood than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Why? Because if we are all preaching, and then someone comes in who's unconverted, and he hears this kind of preaching that is controlled by God, that has the power of the Holy Spirit in it, if we hear that kind of preaching, 1 Corinthians 14, 24, men will see it, The secrets of their heart will be exposed and they will fall down on their faces and say, God is here. Not because you had a great band, not because you had smoke and and red and green lights going, not because your preacher was funny, not because he had skinny jeans, not because he had a cool beard. They will say God was here if you bring to bear the truth of God in such power that men can't deny That man is a servant of the Most High God. Number four, God-centered preaching is not popular. Two reasons. What's the first reason? Uh, uh, Tiani? Because it requires the preacher to be deeply spiritual and hardworking. Underline that. Deeply spiritual and hardworking. God-centered preaching requires that the preacher be deeply spiritual and hardworking. That's not common, is it? It's common to find pastors who are more clued up about soccer or rugby or politics than they are about the Old Testament or the New Covenant. Number two, what's the second reason why it's not common or popular to find God-centered preaching? Because it requires the audience to be more interested in God than themselves. But the books that are popular in Christian bookstores prove that... Christian would rather hear funny stories and tips for being happy than repentance, humility, and Bible's doctrine. Yeah, that's the problem. Is that ultimately, we are far too concerned about ourselves. Like the joke my friend told me some time ago. We were, we were talking, and we talked about him for a moment. And then I said, oh, that reminds me of such and such that happened to me. And he jokingly cut in and said, hey, enough about you. Can we get back to me now? Now, it's funny, it's a little joke when you're talking with your friend, but many people can't endure a sermon that presses them with the overwhelming weight of God, who has no beginning and no ending, who's called the Ancient of Days, the Holy One of Israel. He takes the title Judge of all the earth to himself. And if you have to come face to face and listen about that and look to that one, it's going to overwhelm your soul. 
And it will cause you to talk like Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am a man who is undone. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Or like Daniel in Daniel 10 verse 8, when Daniel only saw an angel who was possibly the Lord Jesus Christ incarnate. He said, then all my beauty was turned to me like filth. And he passed out. Daniel 10 verse 8. Numbers, uh, move over to the next page here. Page number 8, I believe. It's page 8, correct, in your book? Page 8. One great reason why people sometimes doubt the abiding value of God-centered preaching is that they have never heard anything like God-centered preaching. The Bible teaches, though, this is letter B. Notice letter B, this is a progression. I started with saying this, God himself must be the centerpiece of our preaching, but now I'm going to move past that, past God, to the Son of God. Letter B, the Bible teaches that Christ himself is the pinnacle He is the peak. He is actually the clearest expression of the glories of the Father. We're memorizing this passage in our church. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son. God spoke to us and we're all in the last days right now. And he speaks to us by the Son and then follow eight descriptions of what this Son is like. He is the likeness of the Father. He is the exact image of his person. He sits down at the right hand of God. By himself, he purges our sins. He holds all things and through him all things consist. This is Christ. If you've had anything to do with him, if your mind and heart has ever seen the beauty that is in him, you will not want to come to church and hear seven steps to make you happy. The four ways to get out of debt. How to have a better physical relationship with your wife. Say, what is this? Give me Christ. Give me God. Give me heaven and hell. In a very short time, I'm going to die. And the one thing we're supposed to be learning from COVID is the thing we're not learning at all. We're going to die. And after this, the judgment. And instead of that, we're not thinking at all about the judgment. And we're thinking, how can I avoid the flu? So I'm going to quit going to church. When you should be, as Hebrews 10.25 says, you should be redoubling your labors and your efforts to dedicate yourself, to get in at the narrow gate. Strive, Jesus says, to enter at the narrow gate because many people, most, they're going to try and they're not going to fit. They're not going to get in. They're going to fail. Letter B, number two. Oh, this passage. Letter B, number two. Then comes the end. When Christ hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, When Christ has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for Christ must reign until Christ has put all of his enemies under his own feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For the Father has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. But when the Father says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that the Father is accepted who put all things in subjection to Christ. And when all things are subjected to the Father, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to Christ, so that God may be all in all. If your heart says amen, then you are healthy. If there was something in you that said, what's what's the excitement, what's the zeal, when is this done? There's cake up here. 
then you are in a dangerous position. And godly preaching, our goal is to raise the grandmas and the children, the next generation. It's to raise them to see the beauty of this one and to somehow get them when they come in distracted with every care of the world and tempted to fall away, though they won't say it. They are tempted to fall away. Almost every Lord's Day, the people that are coming to hear us preach are tempted to fall away. And the preacher's got to come in there with life and death on his tongue. And Christ there to pull them back to the narrow gate. Number three, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The treasure there is Christ. And the man is you. And motivated by joy for the treasure, you sell it all. <laughs> this? What is this? My eye? I'll pluck that out. My hand? That's a cheap price. Just one? Don't you want them both? I'll pay any price to get that treasure. Number four, and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in sight of God. 1 Peter 2 verse 4. Well, we could go on there. But notice these passages that are saved for the end. Letter C. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 5. Uh, JP, would you mind reading that? It's letter C, number 1. For I claim to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ being crucified. Now, Paul the Apostle was brilliant. He was not saying, don't practice the violin. He was not saying, don't learn how to drive. He was not saying, don't go to a course so that you can enhance yourself in your job. He was saying, when it comes to knowledge, I place such a premium on Christ that if I can't bring it all under his authority and under his headship, then what's the point? And when I preach, everything I say will somehow have a line back to the Lord Jesus. Number two, uh, Corne. But may it never be that I would boast Except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which we, the world have been crucified in me and I to the world. Mm. But our world is made up of a great many people who boast, and they are led by pastors who boast in a great many things other than the cross. So the bumper sticker that you'll see around this town, where a pastor and his wife are on the picture, and the words underneath are, I am a wonder. Which, of course, was a prophecy about the Messiah. But that man, because he doesn't know his Bible, because he doesn't work hard, because he's not deeply spiritual, he's going to put on it, I am a wonder, myself, me, I'm the great one. And he's wearing an expensive suit, and he has rings on his finger, and his fingers, and his wife beside him is holding up her hands with the microphone in such a way that you can see her rich jewelry. Those people are not communicating to me, blessed are the poor in spirit. They're not saying to me, blessed are you who mourn over your sin. Galatians 6.14 says, when you preach, draw those people to boast in Christ. And if you don't know how to do that, you have no business talking in front of people for an hour on the Lord's day. Philippians 3, 17, number 3, letter C, number 3. Paul is our model. Three times in the uh, epistles, Paul says, follow me. 
Imitate me. Follow me. I am the model to follow. And Paul was a man who exalted Christ. So the goal of preaching is simply this. Exalt Christ. Draw them to love Christ. It was over 10 years ago when I was given a series of messages by an American preacher. And as I listened to those, this suddenly came on. And at the same time, I was being influenced by Irving Stegels, who's now with our Lord, a British man who was pastoring in Birchley near Kempton Park. And then my dear friend, Ivor Jeffries, an Afrikaans pastor in Kempton. And between those three sources, that is, the messages that I heard online, and then Irving Stegels and Ivor Jeffries, I was inspired to think more and preach more and draw men's attentions more to Christ. And it is a common lament in my prayer that I know so little of this practice and I do such a poor job of of drawing men to Christ. If you would be a preacher, you must be so gripped by the glory of God and His Son that at the very least, it is your goal to get your hearers to that place. Number two, look on page nine. Why do we preach? What's the goal? This one is the head. We just dealt with the heart, the affections, the loves, the passions, the the desires. Let, let, me, let me turn it from a different perspective here and ask this. The aim of true preaching has to touch the mind. How so? Well, it has to explain the Bible. Letter A, pastors are called what? Pastors are called teachers, Ephesians 4 verse 11. Pastors are teachers. Letter B, Paul told Timothy to preach the word. That is, how can you preach the word unless there's propositions and rational discussion? Our religion is rational. Our religion demands the explanation of complex matters in an understandable way consistently. Which is why a requirement to be a pastor is that he be skilled in communicating. That's not an option. He has to be able to explain in such a way that the people say, I get it. It's clear. If your only skill is being humorous or loud, you don't meet the qualifications. He must be a teacher. Look at letter C. If every word is inspired, which is what we believe about inspiration, that every word was breathed out by God, then every word must be understood. We can't say that some words are unimportant if they were breathed out by the Spirit of God. Letter D. Here's a quote by Robert Thomas, a lecturer at John MacArthur Seminary. The final test of the effectiveness of Bible exposition is, here it is, how can you test your preaching? Here it is, here's the test. How well do individuals who hear the sermon, can they go home and read the passage with greater comprehension of its exact meaning than they could before they heard the message. Or in other words, stand at the door as people leave and ask them, hey, what did you learn from the passage? Pastors don't do that because they don't think their people could answer. And they don't think their people could answer. 
because they didn't say anything about their passage. God was listening to them saying, I know what's in that book because I wrote it, and you're not saying what I said. And so they won't stand at that door and ask the people. And they wouldn't do that anyways because it's far too confrontational, and they aren't interested in confrontation. Letter E. Religion is an intelligent concern and deals with man as a reasoning creature. Sanctification is by the truth, John 17, 17. To move men, we must instruct. No Christian can be stable and consistent, save as he is intelligent. And by that, Dabney meant educated in the Bible. That was a preach in the 1860s in America. And because teaching is so central that I'm going to treat it, I know Paul will as well, repeatedly. So I'm going to pause now in my discussion there. Later on, we're going to bring out teaching more clearly from Scripture and then define it and then take an entire lecture to explain what is insight and attempt to give us some practical uh, methods for discovering insights for ourselves so that we can be insightful in our teaching of the Bible. Number three, so our third perspective is the hands or the obedience or the actions. We covered the heart. That was the first point, the longer point. We covered the head, the teaching, the knowledge, the comprehension. And now we're talking about the hands or the obedience or what you're going to do or your lifestyle. The practical application. Letter A. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.19 Our Lord Jesus would have us teach men the commandments, but furthermore teach them to obey. It is one thing to cause men to memorize what the scripture says. It is another thing to structure the arguments They actually change their lives. And biblical preaching has this as its goal, that men would change. Letter B, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. I love this reference the way it is in the English Bible. John 14, 15. And then again, John 15, 14 says the same thing. In the last night of our Lord, he brought this out repeatedly. Here's two great quotes from John Piper on this topic. Letters C and D in the notes. God is the king of the universe. He has absolute creator rights over this world and everyone in it. But there is rebellion and mutiny on all sides. And his authority is scorned by millions. So the Lord sends out preachers into the world to cry out that God reigns, that he will not suffer his glory to be scorned indefinitely. He will vindicate his name in great and terrible wrath, but that for this present time, a full and free amnesty is offered to all the rebel subjects if they will only turn from their rebellion, call on him for mercy, bow before his throne and swear allegiance and fealty to him forever. He's got it exactly right. And true preaching has got to say this. It's not enough to say, oh, I'll pray. I'll accept Jesus Jesus into my heart. That kind of talk 
is from the heritage of revivalism. It's not enough to make a prayer. We've got to go beyond that and bow our knees. We've got to go beyond it and say, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God that Jesus Christ, our Lord, will do so. And then go on, as Paul says in the very next paragraph in the book of Romans, to kill our sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's got to be that killing of sin. I've given this illustration before, but I would be glad if I give it enough that you can't forget it. And at my funeral, I would be honored if someone would say, he kept saying this illustration over and over. John Bunyan's Holy War. After Prince Emmanuel has come into the town, and they find all the men who are following Diablos. And they bring them one at a time. And in, in this courtroom scene, there are 13 of these villains. Like, hate good, love lies, Mr. Unbelief, and 10 other guys like that. They're all brought before the court. And Mr. Conscience says they're guilty. And then Prince Emmanuel watches. And he calls the members of the town and says, Now town, you have to come and kill them. And Prince Emmanuel himself would not kill the 13 criminals. He said, I want the members of the town to do it. But then as Bunyan writes, the members of the town laid their hands on those 13, but Bunyan says they were so unruly that they gave the town a great difficulty and might have escaped if the town's members had not called out for help to the Lord High Secretary. In that book, the Lord High Secretary is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord High Secretary came down and put his hands on top of the hands of the men of man's soul. And so they were able to kill those criminals. That's exactly right. And biblical preaching says, my goal is that Mugobe and Marius would put their hands on those sins and call out, oh Lord Jesus, give me help, Holy Spirit. And his powerful hand would come onto your hand and suddenly you'd have strength to slay the murderers who are guilty of the blood of your Lord. That's the goal of biblical preaching. Number four in your notes on page nine. So are there three goals when we preach or one? Are there three goals or is there one? Are these all the same thing seen from different perspectives? Or is there something unique about each one? And the answer is these three goals are three different perspectives on the same goal. Exalting Christ means adoration. It means worship. It means the heart work. But of course that's connected to teaching the Bible. You have not understood the Bible unless you've understood love for Christ, which is what we just saw Sunday morning, right? Why is it that the unbelievers are going to socially ostracize the believers? Because they do not know the Father or Christ. The problem was they didn't know God. That's why they disobeyed. They would obey if they only knew. Truly knowing will make you obey. We just saw that on Sunday. We're going to see it again this coming Lord's Day when we get into the Holy Spirit as the teacher and the comforter. In the very next passage in John 16, you're going to see that if he does not teach you, you can't hate correctly. 
Your hatred is all broken. You're always going to hate the wrong things unless he will come and teach you. But if he teaches you, then you'll know how to hate correctly. So there's a connection here between the heart and the hands, or the heart and the head, or the head and the hands, or the head and the heart. In each path, there's a, there's a connection. Jesus is the word of God. That means he is the truth. You cannot know Christ without mastering the truths. So if we correctly handle the Bible, we are exalting Christ. If we are good teachers, then we will be good worshipers. Notice this quote by Spurgeon. Christ is never honored by that which is not true. But we can go on and say the best worship is living an obedient life. That was the first one. That is, if you really love Jesus, you're going to understand his word. You can't love him without understanding the word. Years ago, I've told this example before. Years ago, when I first came here, I'd only been married for a few months. And I had a, a friend in Polokwane, an Afrikaans gentleman. And he invited us to dinner, my wife and I, before we had any children. And we drove down there and met with him. And he had a young lady who was with us for the evening, although they were not married, they weren't staying together. And we just said, okay, we haven't met you before. Are you a believer? Oh, yes, I'm a believer. Okay, how, how did Christ save you? And she said, I wrote this down even. She said, oh, whenever I sing, I can see his angels. Nothing about Christ. Nothing. Was there any adoration for him? So, so I remember asking something like, I can't remember the exact question, but I asked something like, oh, when, when were you born again? Oh, I'm born again every time I see his angels. There was nothing about, I read the Bible and God's word spoke to my mind. I understood what was in the Bible. And then I saw Christ and loved him. And now I'm obeying his commands. Godly preaching ought to have that as a goal. And so, biblical preaching has a goal, it has a purpose, and the goal is God, Christ, or understanding, comprehension, or obedience. And you will find that you cannot do one of those three without, in some mark, doing the, in some regard, doing the others. <clears throat> So I close with this. Which one do you have to do when you go to preach? In a sense, a pastor can choose. A preacher can choose. Different passages will emphasize different things. For example, the Sermon on the Mount emphasizes very much the hands, the obedience. The epistles of Paul emphasize the head. Not always. There's much of the heart in there. And there's much of the hands. If you're preaching the first three chapters of Ephesians, you'll have more of the head. If you're preaching in chapters 4, 5, and 6, you'll have much more of the hands. If you're on his prayers in chapter 1 or chapter 3, it will be the, the heart and the love and adoration. So let the passage that you're dealing control. Is this a sermon where I'm going to draw the people to love Christ? Well, what does the passage say? Is this a sermon where I'm going to Open up the teaching of the Bible and show them the verbs and the nouns and let them see the argument. 
What does the passage say? Is this a passage where I'm going to urge them to obey and give a list of 12 ways they can avoid this sin or seven ways they can add this grace to their life? And again, what does the passage say? May God grant that we will have these God-centered goals when we teach and preach the Bible. Any comments or questions?